Okay, Matthew um, 20, verses 1 through 16. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out around nine in the morning and saw others standing around in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went. Again, around noon, and then at three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon, he went and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day long? Because nobody hired us, they replied. He responded, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a denarian. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last worked one hour and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I am generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Betty Jean. So sometimes when we talk about the things of God, we talk about them as if they aren't or shouldn't be confusing. <laughs> for, there are several folks uh, that I'm looking at right now that do or have preached uh, at Oak Church or in other places. And, and if they told you that scripture isn't or shouldn't be confusing, that I don't think they're telling you the truth, right? Um, but we generally think about these, uh, these things of God, um, they should be kind of clear cut and obvious to us. Things like justice, mercy, peace, grace. If, if those things are confounding, it often feels like we're not doing it right. Like we haven't got it right. Most of us think that we should know it when we see it. And if I think I know it, and I've seen it, your picture of that better line up with mine or else one of us is confused and that's probably putting it kindly. But in the parables, Jesus tells of this three-dimensional reality, these hypothetical microcosms like mini worlds 
Jesus creates, they, they bear witness to the kingdom of God that cannot be contained by prepositions and binaries. If, if they could, Jesus would just do that. He would give us PowerPoint slides and, and uh, outlines. But he sets up these whole ecosystems that you step into. They're like simulacra of a new reality. And parables hate principles. So throw away your systems and suspend your expectations and get into the story. And once you're there, realize that things can look quite differently depending on where you're sitting or standing. One person's justice is another person's scandal. One person's injustice is another one's grace. One person person's threat is another one's blessing. It sounds a whole lot like our world, but maybe even more so. And I think that's the point of these parables. They're, they're exactly like our world, but maybe even more so. Some of the context from our parable today from Matthew. We find Jesus weaving a tale in a place and time in which there was a form of sharecropping and it existed under Herod, but it has some similarities to the sharecropping of the American South. It's basically like a form of slavery by another name. Herodian sharecropping was based on similar imbalances and kind of loops of possible oppression, and it put a lot of pressure on producers to work in thin margins. This was a high pressure economy where even the bosses had bosses and there were always payments to be made. In a time of pandemic, our present day similarities are probably uh, in sharp relief for us. If renters can't pay their landlords, how can landlords pay their lenders? And lenders, well, for the most part, they're still probably going to be all right. Somehow the people at the top top never seem to feel the same pinch as those who are at the bottom or those who are somewhere in the middle. But in ancient times, worst off were those without land who were at the mercy of having to get a job each day. Maybe it's uh, maybe that's some of the reason for Jesus teaching his followers to pray, give us today our daily bread. It wasn't um, spiritualized. They actually didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. Not to mention the fact that ancient agriculture in general and like vineyard life more specifically was really seasonal and specific. You don't always need a whole lot of labor at hand, but in the quote unquote due time when the grapes are ripe and they contain the perfect amount of sugar and tannins, and when the rains are coming, you need all hands on deck. Essential workers are actually essential. Perhaps this gives a little more texture and gravitas to the usually sentimental evangelical idea of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. When the harvest is plentiful, if you don't harvest them, it's really bad economic news. It's into these realities that Jesus speaks, into this volatile, high-risk, high-reward world that relying on folks, like, quote-unquote, with their backs against the walls, to use a Howard Thurman term. Jesus speaks into this about the kingdom of God. 
one of my favorite writers, and I'm always at the danger of quoting her too much, um, but she was a Southern Gothic writer, Flannery O'Connor, and she told wacky stories too. And wacky is probably a euphemism, sometimes downright grotesque stories. And in a workshop to young writers, she commented, all of my stories are about the action of grace on a character or characters who are not very willing to support it. But most people think of these stories as hard, hopeless, and brutal. <laughs> Today, Jesus tells that sort of story, a parable, that if read from only one direction might actually seem a bit hard, hopeless, and brutal. But I, actually, I think it's actually probably about grace. Of course, it's not only about grace. Parables work on a lot of different levels and from a lot of different angles, but don't ever trust anyone if they tell you how that they know the interpretation or how the parable works, especially a parable like ours. These stories have different characters and different points of view. That's why I love the Godly Play way of telling stories and wondering questions because it, it helps you walk in and walk around in a story and never exhaust it. There's also um, a beautiful um, old scripture reading practice called an Ignatian reading after uh, Ignatius of Loyola. And it's where you put yourself into the gospels, into the shoes of one or another character. Like one minute you're in the crowd pressing upon Jesus, feeling what that might feel like another time you're one of the disciples and you're not always the, the, the disciple who is telling the truth. Or maybe in this, you're, you're the householder trying to get your harvest picked one minute and then the next you're a temporary day laborer uh, trying to get work. So walk around in these stories, get a feel for the different um, head spaces and the different pressures. If you're ever bored reading scripture, stand somewhere else. <laughs> if you're ever bored, just stand somewhere else. Ask new questions. So a couple of observations about this story. First off, it's, it's a little hard culturally to know what is weird in a story like this because the whole world is pretty weird. But even in their time and in their context, something that would have struck the listeners as odd is that the householder is the one doing the hiring. The one going out again and again, seeking folks to join the harvest. Perhaps you got called early, like 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. Maybe you're late to the game, like noon or 3 or 5. But what, it, what this is really about is that it's all hands on deck for a harvest. And like the good father from the Luke 15 parable trilogy, it's unlikely that anyone in the ancient world with any power, wealth, or standing would be that active, would be doing this sort of hustling over and over, going out. But Jesus imagines a world where the Lord of the harvest is intimately involved and is really hands-on and invested. For some of this, this is a pretty novel idea for God and church. So often the world of Christianity is like this inherently safe and stable construct 
we, we couldn't or we shouldn't go there or do that or be with them. Many of us have grown up around pastors who, for one reason or another, have given us like a stunted imagination for what it means to be holy. And for that reason, holy has come to mean disengaged or stodgy or judgmental rather than active and embedded and empowering. The householder of Jesus's parable is deeply interested in outgoing and invested in bringing others into participation in flourishing. The vision of, of holy is, is massive and ever expanding. That's one of the reasons for this Y'all Saints um, ongoing uh, sermon series that, that we'll pick up next week with D.L. Mayfield and Dorothy Day is to continue to, to prime and grow our imaginations for what it means to be called a holy one of God in Durham or in D.C. or in um, uh, Dorothy Day's uh, instance in New York City. So in our parable, all this happens, all this sort of outgoing engagement happens in pretty surprising and specific ways. And first, there's a salary negotiation, a day's work for a day's wage, and like a denarian is a decent day's wage. And this householder proceeds to keep making more and more handshake labor contracts about every three hours. Presumably, he just needs as many hands as possible. Think about like pulling into a Lowe's parking lot early in the morning before the sun comes up and trying to get guys to come into your truck to work in the vineyard. But then you drive back to Lowe's every three hours to try to get more people. You're trying to talk people into coming that maybe even didn't see themselves as workers in the first place. I'm not sure, but something tells me that the later groups were probably less desirable workers. They were probably a little more desperate. They were probably expecting less and less. They just wanted to get on the job. When they ask how much the pay will be, the employer kind of shrugs his shoulders and maybe even winks and says, I'll pay you what is right. There are no bargaining position to say otherwise. This, this word, I'll pay you what is right, is actually also the same word for right, like righteous or just. The employer is giving the insurance. Don't worry, it'll work out how it should, trust me. And so he does this over and over, rinse and repeat, and we're given a little hint that the later laborers are quote unquote standing around doing nothing because no one would hire them. They can't give up on this option because they don't have any other options. It's their last resort. So finally the day comes to an end and the envelopes come out. <laughs> uh, this, this feels like a little under the table dealing, right? Let's just say the first line of workers were promised like the equivalent of like 120 bucks for working for their day. But in a strange move, the householder tells his manager to disperse the checks in reverse order. Not the first come, first serve basis, but last come, first serve. Last come, first serve seems like a strange MO. It seems to be the philosophy here though. The five o'clockers, the early morning people, they or the, the five o'clockers, the late afternoon people open their envelope and they, they, they open up and you can imagine them 
ripping it open and they get six crisp $20 bills. Needless to say, they're stoked. They didn't expect a whole lot. And everyone else kind of in the line that had been working longer starts to kind of greedily do the math per hour. If these dudes are getting $120 an hour, they're all going to be set. The early shift stands to make something like $1,440. It's going to be great. But when the envelopes start to get handed out, folks get increasingly frustrated that there are six crisp $20 bills in each envelope, a flat rate. They grumbled about this and the householder replied, friend, I did not do you any wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. A little note, friend, maybe should be more <laughs> accurately uh, translated as like friendo or buddy. Like it's not, they're not friends here, right? Um, this is kind of like, hey buddy, take it or leave it. The house owner says, are you resentful that I'm generous? Literally, are you giving me the evil eye because I'm good? Jesus's parable blows up this world to start a new one. Whereas our world tries to set things up so that we get what we deserve, the kingdom of God is based on a vast enoughness where everyone not only gets what they need, but they oftentimes get much more. There's a salary in the kingdom based on who you know, the king, not based on what you've done or your hourly wages. This is just and right, not by our standards, but by God's standards. Who has given according to God's riches and according to God's promises and more? <laughs> I wish this parable was a little more well-known. We, we often popularly just quote it as the last shall be first and the first shall be last, but we, we detach it from the rest of the parable because it's so frustrating. It fights against privilege and entitlement. I think if Jesus told this story today, half of his audience would have tuned out pretty quickly, dismissing what he was saying as like socialist propaganda or like affirmative action or something. And the other half would probably be pretty anxious about whether or not Jesus was truly pro-workers rights enough for the early earners, right? If this parable reads comfortably to you, you need to reread it again and again until it bothers you. Reread it from the shoes of someone inside the parable or reread it from the shoes of someone outside of the parable who is confused by this confusing grace. Because this confusion should also belong to you and I at times. No matter how schooled you are or are becoming in the economics of God's grace and God's kingdom, we should still bump and trip up against the walls of these parable stories. This story by design reveals our ungracious math and lets us in on the open secret of God's grace. God's grace has a logic of its own. Whenever I read parable stories, I always go to Robert Farr Capon, who he, he wrote, uh, he was an Episcopal priest and a New York Times 
um, like op-ed columnists, and he wrote about food and wine and all of these things and the parables. And uh, he always has these like crazy inflammatory takes on the parables that I love. And about this one, he, he puts it this way, uh, about how God's grace has a logic of his own. He says, God is only crazy, not stupid. God is only crazy, not stupid. He says, like God, the householder has arranged for their recompense based only on the weird goodness he's most famous for, not the just desserts they infamously imagine for themselves. Every last envelope they find has six 20s in it. No more for those who worked all day or no less for those who didn't. For those of us, probably all of us, who walk through life with God, wanting to know what the score is and what to expect, Jesus, and this is again another cape and quote, quote, wax us over the head with the bad news that there's only good news. Jesus waxes us over the head with the bad news that there's only good news. This grace has like this imbalance, this strange asymmetry to it. The disciples, us as disciples of Jesus, we give our lives, our work, our hopes, we, we give them over to Jesus in return for God's life, Jesus's work, the Spirit's hope. That's not a, that's not a good trade. We come out in the better for it. We've been initiated into this life through repentance. We've been marked by baptism to show that none of this relies on us. That God actually prefers a death that he can resurrect over a life headed in the wrong direction. This is a life of abundance that is not all that flashy. And so sometimes we actually miss it. It just flies right by us. God's grace is confusing and we confuse it often. It is subtle and it is spacious. It is nonchalant and non-anxious and abundant and patient and above and beyond. And Jesus wishes it for us and wishes like the blessings of the Beatitudes to reform our imaginations. Jesus wants us to be synced with what the kingdom of the heavens, which is all around us, is like. It's so close to us, it's at hand. Jesus brings us in as citizens of this kingdom, wants us to know what it tastes like and feels like and looks like and acts like. This is a spirit-led kingdom, which is paradoxically built on vulnerability. Lastness, leastness, lostness, littleness, proximity to death, all the things we try to avoid for ourselves. But this kingdom is ultimately the most durable and real and abundant way to be. This is why the fruit of the Spirit, talk about reacting to our seasons and, and um, interacting with the earth in a different way in the fall. This fruit of the Spirit is actually planted in fallow winter dead ground, but it yields things over a long period of time. And we don't even 
often recognized when this fruit is growing, but it yields things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against these things, there is no law because it is the new law of the land. It's the physics, it's the gravity, it's the currency, it's the lingua franca. This is what the kingdom of the heavens is like. Do we really believe that? Jesus is welcoming us into a world where there is more than enough because God says so. It is coming in full and it already exists in part and we get glimpses of this here and there already. We become glimpses of this here and there already. Last night I was, I got the chance to be a part of an outdoor memorial service for a neighbor who recently died and we were around a campfire recounting her life and her love. And it was so obvious to me how God uses ordinary people, like imperfect and mortal people like all of us to witness to the grace and expansiveness of God's kingdom. For her, story after story told around that campfire was how this woman made other people feel braver and better and smarter and funnier and kinder and more interesting than they actually are. (laughs) We all know people like that just by giving us their attention and presence and creativity, we become more than we already are. This is part of God's vast conspiracy of enoughness. It's something that all of us are able to experience in some measure. And it's something that all of us have the potential to offer in some measure. This is a more than enoughness and it's most purely experienced in Christ. In in Jesus, whose words and stories bear witness to this reality, but whose broken body and poured out blood open that reality up to all of us. Jesus invites us to join him. Jesus invites us to be united by the spirit to him, to be like him, to share in this abundant life with every thought we have, every interaction we encounter, every hope that forms us. This works its way out in our actions. It works its way out in our imaginations. We act in simple, small ways because the kingdom is already come. This means that our faith and our citizenship in this kingdom causes us to read a parable like this and support like concrete initiatives that take care of the poor, that offer a living wage, that, that remember the vulnerable, that, that even take care of the Johnny come lately. So like it, it forms like this generous imagination in us that has concrete results. And it also, um, makes us expect because uh, things should be different and aren't yet. Jesus is Lord now, but we can imagine towards a future that has not already arrived in full. We lean towards the hope of every knee bowed and every tongue confessing Christ as Lord. And we lean towards this future where every tear will be wiped away from every eye as we sit under the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations.
So, so we, we, we have plenty of work to do now and we have plenty of imagination building and hoping to do towards the future of this kingdom that has come and is coming. Amen. Let it be so. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for these wild stories. We, we thank you that you give us a three-dimensional look at a God who is not crazy <laughs> or maybe who by our standards is crazy enough to imagine a better world. And you've called us into this world and you've given us more than we need, more than enough. Help us be thankful and generous in that type of world. Help us be builders of that sort of world. Help us be heralds of that sort of world in places where uh, it's, that good news is so unbelievable. Uh, thanks for um, your scripture that is alive and active and um, endlessly interesting and convicting. It's uh, sharp and it's sweet. Help us feast on this word as we gather around the table and feast uh, in your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.